Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today we're talking to Rob Bodis, who is currently a senior research fellow at the Academy of Finland Center of Excellence in the History of Experience at Tampere University. He is an internationally renowned scholar in the histories of emotions, science, and medicine. His previous books include The Science of Sympathy, Pain, A Very Short Introduction, The History of Emotions, and A History of Feelings. This is just to name a few. Um, Today we'll be talking about his 10th book, which is titled Humane Professions, The Defense of Experimental Medicine, 1876 through 1914, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. I uh, I did all of my um, university education at the University of York uh, in the UK, um, and since then had a very uh, international career. But I, the book that we're talking about today is dedicated to uh, Wolfgang Beringer, who was my first supervisor at postgraduate level. Um, and a profound uh, influence on me. And he actually was the, uh, he replaced John Bossy at York. Um, and John Bossy is probably the reason that I'm an historian um, at mm. all. Um, so uh, it was nice to honor uh, Wolfgang by dedicating this to him. That's wonderful. Um, and tell can you tell us a little bit about, I, I can't believe this is your 10th book. I, I just can't imagine having 10 books in me. Um, How did you come to write it? Uh, I can't quite believe it's my 10th book either. (laughs) either. Um, uh, This book, um, in the end, it it came about very, very quickly in terms of the writing, but I actually started it um, without knowing what it was going to be back in 2010, when I was um, a postdoc for a year at the Department of History of Science at Harvard. Um, and I took the opportunity to go um, every day to the Countway um, Library, Medical Library, uh, and was essentially rifling my way through um, the, the Walter Cannon papers, um, knowing that if I wasn't going to be at Harvard, I would never really get access to these things again, not easily. Um, and so then I had this, this body of sources that um, have been underused, I would say. Um, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with them. Um, and it took a very long time over, uh, 10 years, um, uh, sort of finding my way in, um, the history of emotions, um, and, um, and now the history of experience to, uh, have an understanding of how to marshal this material and what else I needed to go to go with it. So that was the, the beginning point was a long time ago, but then when I realized what to do with it, I had to go all over the place uh, a long time in, in New York at the Rockefeller Archive Center um, and also in, in London at the Wellcome um, and uh, quite a lot of work also in Berlin. So it, it took a little while to gather all of the, the sources, but then the book was essentially written in in lockdown um, in March, April, and May last year. 
Wow. So that then it, uh, that's that is very, that's incredible. Three months. Um, I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about um, history of the motion of the emotions and um, the history of experience and what it's like to sort of do work in that vein um, in humane professions. And I'm going to read this quote. You say um, it is quote about the strategy and tactics developed for an internationally networked defense of experimental medicine. And in some respects, it's about the formation of a public relations strategy by the medical establishment, but that your analysis goes beyond the political and rhetorical to the experiential. So can you say a little bit more about how you do this? How do you go go beyond the political and rhetorical to the experiential with the records you're working with? Yeah, it's... Um... It's a really good question, and experience is at the heart of of this book, um, and it's something that I've been working towards for quite a few years, um, trying to make sense of what the history of emotions was good for, and and where its limits were, and how to transcend those limits, um, and kept coming back to this question of. Um, experience which seemed to go beyond um, emotions but to also to include um, the configuration of emotions with senses and with knowledge and with practices and with representation um, and and to sort of capture um, if you like how it felt um, to be there then but beyond um, a sort of reductive category like emotion. Um, and fortunately, in this, uh, for this context, um, for this uh, subject matter, um, experience was also at the heart of what they were talking about. So if you like, it gave me a double level. I wanted um, to try to get at what um, late 19th century scientists were talking about when they were talking about experience and also to, to do it through this um, historiographical uh, analytical lens. Um, and for these scientists, experience was, uh, was, was everything insofar as they had um, announced and they announced repeatedly that they'd, they'd sort of reached the end of book learning um, and if you wanted to know things um, in in the culture of 19th century research, then you had to do these things. Um, reading about them wasn't good enough. Um, and so they connected um, their expertise to the experience of being in the laboratory. Um, and, and that then implicates um, experimentation. So you have these these three words, experience, experiment, and expertise, which are, they are uh, etymologically connected, um, but they're at the heart of, of what this book um, is about. Um, and this, to get at it, um, I, I spend a long time looking at what these scientists say, but I also spend a lot of time looking at what they, what they do, what life is like in the laboratory and the way in which the claims they make the professions they make about their experiences in the laboratory feed back into the practices of the laboratory. So I'm, I'm really looking at this dynamic uh, relationship of saying and, and doing, trying to uh, 
drill down to um, what it felt like to be an experimental uh, medical researcher in this in this period. And sometimes they give you they give you this great these great insights about um, how they felt when they were doing certain things, and these these feelings are often at odds with what you would expect. Um, and, you know, in a context where you're talking about vivisecting animals, um, they often talk about um, the banality of work. And occasionally they talk about, you know, the satisfaction of doing something that's so socially beneficent. Um, and what's key, what's, what's missing is any sense of horror any sense of um, uh, disgust or reticence, but rather a kind of uh, a drive to keep doing this thing because of its ultimate good. And is is there anything, just I'm going to ask a very simple question, um, is there anything about life as a medical science scientist in the late 19th or early 20th century that um, our listeners would need to know about and just in terms of how it's different from life today before we really start digging into the, um, the, the uh, substance of your argument. Mm. Yeah, uh, well, a lot of things, I guess. Um, the key thing, I mean, I start, I start this story uh, with the British example um, in the 1870s. Um, and it's a moment at which... Um, uh, professional and specialist scientists are sort of emerging and they're, they're existing in, um, in tandem with these uh, older, more sort of gentleman um, generalists who, who dabble um, in a bit of everything. Um, and for a while, there's this, um, there's this mixture of, um, shall we say, sort of old school um, amateur generalism that uh, tends to face outwards, you know, has a kind of public presence. And this uh, young gun um, specialist uh, working for a living um, whose who's focus is um, what goes on inside the laboratory and only that. Um, and that generates a tension, which I think is very specific um, to this time. Um, the other thing that I think is important to say is that um, in this book, I'm I'm talking about um, the ways in which um, the medical profession um, came together, organized itself, formalized um, um, its its self defense, if you like. Um, and that's a lot to do with um, international network building and and learning how to exercise a kind of um, institutional or establishment power um, out of necessity, where before there wasn't necessarily this kind of um, coherent way of um, defending an entire um, profession. So what's really interesting about this is that as a perspective, you say it, the, the perspective of these are really the, the powerful people or um, 
the the um, sort of medical profession emerging as uh, legitimate and prestigious. Um, and their arguments are put in contrast to the anti-vivisectionists who mm-hmm. you write have, there's actually been a lot more written about the anti-vivisectionists. So, yeah. um, in, in kind of this counterintuitive way, the, this, uh, the argument that is made by the powerful people is the one that's gotten less attention in the literature up until now. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what, what anti-vivisectionists believe and how that contrasts with the defense of experimental medicine? Yeah. I, so one one of the things that I noticed um, a long time ago was that um, there wasn't much written about about uh, the the medical scientists, um, and when people did write about them, um, there was a kind of a fairly common assumption um, that they were uh, in some ways um, split personalities, um, like they 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 were upstanding gentlemen, if you like, in, in their everyday lives, but then somehow became these monstrous practitioners in the laboratory. And I felt that that was um, simply taking uh, late 19th century anti-vivisectionist rhetoric at its word. Um, and, you know, that, in, that inspired me to actually make the inquiry. Um, but the reality is there is so much more about um, anti-vivisectionism and that's in part because of its connection to um, socially progressive movements to uh, first wave feminism um, um, and to um, also a kind of social history uh, um, angle that from in the 1960s and 70s especially um, was trying to recover something and, and you know, it coincided with um, the post-Second World War animal rights movement. Um, and that, that gave anti-vivisectionism a kind of um, a purchase in the historiography um, uh, that I think elevated it um, in some ways beyond its importance. Um, reading that anti-vivisectionist stuff from the 19th century, what's most striking about most of it um, is that its most fundamental concern is not something like animal rights, um, animal welfare figures, um, but their main concern is something to do with um, morality in a civilized state. Um, And the threat, as it's seen within anti-vivisectionist literature is that uh, the leaders of civilization are going to be um, displaced by these um, scientific minds. Um, The leaders being the clergy and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the kind of grounding of morals in religion to be replaced by this kind of rather callous intellectual curiosity. Um, and that's the signal note of anti-vivisectionism. And once I kind of tapped that, the response of the scientists made much more sense. 
So can you tell us a little bit about the response of the scientists and how how do anti-vivisectionists kind of inspire what becomes a really coordinated movement among the scientific and medical communities? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, 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 uh, it, the anti-vivisectionist movement gains ground very quickly, um, in, in Britain. Um, and there's an attempt made by anti-vivisectionists to try to legislate for, um, animal cruelty in the laboratory. Um, and the response, and this seems very typically English, the response of uh, the scientific community is um, to to match that legislative attempt with um, their own attempt to regulate themselves. Um, and this was really led by uh, people like Charles Darwin, who, and you know, classic case of a, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the sort of amateur generalist, um, you know, not a practicing, practicing physiologist, um, no real laboratory experience at all. And yet um, he felt this need to um, protect his scientific colleagues by putting forward his own version of um, what amounts to um, a regulative piece of, uh, of legislation. Um, and neither of these things worked actually, and it led to a, a, a Royal Commission of inquiry about vivisection and the effect it had on um, the scientists who did it and, you know, whether there was a kind of callousness at the, at the head of society. Um, and in the end, there was, um, there was a, an act of, of legislation, which I think pleased neither side in particular. Um, but it did at least provide a legal framework for anti-vivisectionists to try to prosecute um, scientists whose curiosity had got the better of them. Um, unfortunately, they they sort of overshot. Um, they tried to prosecute David Ferrier um, for practicing without a license, um, doing experiments on on monkeys, um, and it, it it garnered a lot of attention. But it also um, rallied the scientific community. Um, I'm very the, the case was thrown out um, and and all the all the charges were dropped um, but it it did lead to a kind of um, collection of monies um, among the scientific community which ended up funding the Association uh, for the Advancement of Medicine by research uh, which was uh, began in 1882 I think. Um, and it was this group of medical scientists comprised basically of all the people who were doing the chief work um, in, in experimental medicine who ended up um, with de facto control over the government issuing of licenses um, to do the research. It was an entirely uh, corrupt arrangement um, but it, it seemed to be to the satisfaction of both the Home Office and the scientists that they um, they would basically vet all the applications for experimental licenses um, and advise the government to issue them. Um, and that wasn't widely known, 
Mm -hmm. um, and it basically wrong-footed um, the anti-vivisection movement for a generation um, in in Britain um, because um, the, the scientists had effectively complete control over the process. Um, and it was, I make a point of this in the book, it was actually, I, I, I see it as a way of Darwin apologizing for his earlier meddling um, that he he gifted this association a hundred pounds um, mm. as, as part of its uh, uh, getting off the ground. And um, that was one of the last acts he made before, before his death. So the defense of experimental medicine gets started in Britain. Mm -hmm. um, and, but then the story um, sort of travels tra and, and you, you move to, 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 to Germany and Massachusetts. You tell us a little bit about how, um, how this, the argument sort of changed shape when, when they moved to different locations. Yeah. Um, so um, it's easy to, to track um, the way in which anti-vivisectionism was networked. Um, there are certain key figures that appear in all of these locations, or if they don't appear directly, you can you connect, can connect um, uh, people directly. Um, and so anti-vivisectionism in Germany uh, kind of comes pre-packaged from, from um, England, um, but it's met with a completely different kind of um, uh, scientific and professional uh, and also social response, in part because um, Germany is the critical center of um, innovation in uh, this kind of medical research. It's where all the scientists from all over the place went to get trained. Um, and um, part of the reason it's it's so um, well-developed and it's so uh, esteemed is that these uh, German scientists are already, they're, they're professionals, they're government employees. What they do in the laboratory is done with the sanction of the state, um, which is uh, very different to the case uh, either in uh, Britain or in, in the US. Um, and the anti-vivisection movement, I mean, it, it has some I guess you could call them flashpoints of success in Germany, but but it quickly um, gets absorbed into rather more um, radical configurations to do with you know a kind of um, nature holism um, or vegetarianism, um, such that it it doesn't really have this broad appeal um, and. Uh, the scientists essentially, whilst they, they organize themselves to a certain extent, um, their main response is just ignore this and it will go away. Um, um, the, the main thing with the Germans is that in both Britain and in the US, um, there's this uh, rhetorical line that somehow there's something about experimental medicine which is German, but in a bad way. Um, <laughs> um, 
um, there's some there's something in these practices which indicates a kind of callousness um, or a kind of um, um, a lack of uh, sensitivity, um, which is peculiar to German science. Um, and the fear is that this is being taught or, and, and then appropriated by scientists from, from other countries. Um, and the vivisection, anti-vivisectionists make a lot of that. But there's also, you can see scientists in, in Britain and in the US um, trying to reassure both themselves and the public that no, they're just teaching us what to do. We're not taking any, any kind of... Um, any German kind of character flaws with us, but it's interesting that that's there and it in, endures. Um, I, I wonder if this might be a good place to, to just kind of say a few words about what exactly experimental, experimental medicine was, what methods were they using? This is not, um, we don't, we, we don't mean um, experiments on human subjects, right? Uh, generally no. Although um, the, the question of human experimentation um, becomes, uh, it looms ever larger the further along you go. Um, and certainly uh, in the anti-vivisectionist rhetoric, there's always this perceived threat that uh, the scientists' curiosity will get the better of them and they will divert their attention to um, the use of living humans in the laboratory but but in in the main no this the, the question is about um experimentation on living animals um and there are a number of different um disciplinary specialisms which are developing in this period um physiology is the main one mm-hmm. um but uh m- Branches like uh, toxicology, uh, immunology, bacteriology, um, they're, they're all using animals in some way. Um, and um, I mean, this is the, the era of, of making um, sort of serum and um, experimenting with vaccines. And, um, you know, if you, if you want to make uh, diphtheria serum, say, or, or something for meningitis, then you need a lot of animals in order to kind of culture the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there's a kind of a broad definition of experimental. Sometimes animals are simply instrumental, um, but all of these uh, different branches of medical science are using live animals in some way. Um, and a and a great amount of the attention revolves around the extent to which the animals um, uh, are conscious of what's happening to them. Um, and so a lot uh, of focus is on the status of um, uh, anesthesia um, and the extent to which um, you can have a living animal which is nonetheless completely unconscious. Right. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, let's kind of jump uh, to the United States now and, mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about how anti-vivisection bills fared in Massachusetts at the turn of the 20th century. So what was it like here in the United States? Well, um, so the anti-vivisection movement uh, gets to the U.S. later um, than in Britain or Germany. Um, 
And in part, that's because um, the development of um, uh, experimental laboratories in the US is itself also a little bit later. Um, but the people who are, uh, you know, at the center of that development are aware from the start that there is likely to be at some point um, an attempt uh, either to shut down um, experimentation involving animals or to legislate against it. And this is part of the networking that I'm that I'm tracking, that there are key figures in the U.S. who are very well plugged in to what's happening in Germany and what's happening in, uh, in Britain. And so um, when it eventually comes about um, uh, in Massachusetts and then later in, in New York, um, these, these um, budding anti-vivisectionist uh, societies uh, start putting forward um, attempts in state legislatures to um, either regulate or abolish uh, vivisection. And the, um, the community, um, really only kind of loosely affiliated community of medical scientists in those states uh, realize they have to come together. And you, you, you see a kind of correspondence network um, uh, in the first instance, it's led by uh, people like uh, uh, Bowditch at Harvard, um, just writing to to everyone they know around who has something to do with this, to get them to um, submit their um, experiences with working with animals and to basically attest to their sound ethical principles um, in the absence of any kind of formalized uh, modes of procedure or, or ethical guidelines. And each year there's a there's an attempt to legislate and each year they they come together and they submit their remonstrances uh, and the next year it repeats and it repeats and it repeats um, until the medical scientists get absolutely sick of uh, having to turn out year on year and do the same thing. Um, and the bills never go anywhere. They're always uh, thrown out. Um, but the concern grows that, well, you know, uh, this is turning into a sort of war of attrition. If we get so sick and tired of it that we take our, our eye off the ball, um, then the anti-vivisectionists will sort of sneak something through and we'll pay for it forever. And so these these early experiences with dealing with um, bills before state legislatures um, lead to this more formal organization of a defense. I took it. I took this section um, to also be pointing towards a kind of tension between, um, you know, knowledge about what goes on in the laboratory being accessible only to a privileged elite or being secret or and and. Um, knowledge about what goes on in the laboratory being more public or transparent. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about that tension? Yeah, uh, that's a very central tension in the in the whole book because on the one hand, um, the the key uh, scientists always at pains to say that 
our laboratories are open. Anyone that wants to come and look only has to ask. We will show you around. We will show you what we do. We've got nothing to hide. You know, uh, no one needs to say anything about, you know, um, shining light in dark places because, you know, it's all very transparent. Um, at the same time, at the core of their defensive argument is you can't possibly understand what's going on in these laboratories unless you're working in one. The knowledge that's produced in these places is absolutely tied to the experience of producing it. Uh, and, and therefore, um, anyone from the outside, any layperson that comes in, they might look at it and make entirely the wrong conclusion because they don't have what they need to understand it. Um, and this, I mean, in a way, this, this puts the scientists in this quite um, precarious position of having to say, what we're doing is for the overwhelming good of society, but you have to take our word for it. Um, because only if you're a scientist can you uh, understand that that's true. Um, and I think that that's, um, that's the, uh, the fundamental instability of what they're trying to do. And that the claim that only they have access to a particular type of experience, right? Yeah, that's it. Because, um, because I mean, they run into this problem quite a lot uh, where um, they, you know, published accounts of what's been done in the laboratory get picked up by antivivisectionists. Um, and parts of sort of uh, descriptions of experiments are amplified as if this is proof of some kind of horrible cruelty. Um, and the, the response is, no, you just simply don't understand unless you've done this experiment. You don't understand how the anesthetic works. You don't understand how the procedure works. You don't understand the nature of the animal's condition, anything. Um, um, it, it, it makes for a kind of zero-sum uh, game in a way like there's there isn't a coherent argument between two sides there are simply two sides um, uh, and whenever the medical scientists are attacked their defense is not in terms of what uh, was charged against them but simply a dismissal of those charges on the basis of you don't have access to understanding this so everything you say is nonsense so this defense of experimental medicine, this takes place in the courts to a, a certain extent, but it also um, generates a really robust kind of uh, public debate mm. in, in public, popular periodicals and different organizations that are sort of lobbying for their point of view. Mm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the Research Defense Society, which, well, I, I mean, the name is, it's quite <laughs> clear what, what they intend to do. Um but how did they sort of marshal the defense of experimental medicine? Okay, so um, this is where the um, the British and the American um, uh, stories diverge um, in in quite an interesting way. So the Research Defense Society is um, is the uh, the British uh, based society, um, and it replaces the uh, Association for the Advancement. Of medicine by research, um, although it takes a lot of its personnel with it. Um, but the idea of it was to, um, if you like, uh, end this um, constant non-debate between 
anti-vivisection activists on the one hand and scientists on the other hand, and instead try to build a community of lay support, um, but lay support in a very um, particular way, um, comprised of uh, society figures, um, eminent ladies, the clergy, um, the aristocracy, essentially people who they thought you know, their word would, or their name alone, irrespective of what they said, would carry this great weight of influence um, and change um, the reception of vivisection um, in a, at a societal level. And so this is really a conscious attempt to, to um, build a kind of public-facing organization for the defense of research where the, um, the mouthpieces weren't themselves scientists. And were, were they successful? Well, I mean, it's very difficult to actually <laughs> to measure in concrete terms um, how successful they were. Um, all I can do really is, um, is go on um, the context um, in which this society is exerting its influence. And what you see is um, a greater and greater expansion of medical experimentation with greater and greater support from um, governments and the crown um, against a um, kind of dwindling effectiveness in um, uh, among anti-vivisectionists. And so, you know, I mean, the, the, the society itself they got thousands of members, you know, all paying. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of people prepared to, to, to publicly state that um, animal experimentation is done for the overwhelming good of society. Um, and you have to say at least, um, you know, into the period of the First World War and after that, um, if there's a kind of a, a victorious half here, it's definitely not the anti-vivisectionists. Um, it's, it's medical research. You have a really compelling quote that I'm just going to read out here, um, that medical experimentation as a humane profession becomes a government business. Yeah. Um, could you say how a little bit more about how that happens? Yeah, so it's... it's um, through a number of threads that that uh, slowly come together, um, this is again this is in in the UK. Um, um, so there's you know the the AAMR has been um, behind the scenes uh, pulling the strings uh, of the way that government licensing works, um, and eventually um, uh, through a second royal commission into vivisection. Um, everyone realizes that they can't sustain this obvious conflict of interest. Um, but in the meantime, the government itself um, has uh, ha uh, appointed another royal commission um, to look into tuberculosis. And I mean, the standard way of, of conducting a royal commission is you have um, uh, a bunch of men who sit at a desk um, and they get lots of people to come in and talk to them and give them testimony. Um, 
And when they formed the Royal Commission for Tuberculosis, the commissioners realized that the only way to do it was to do research. Um, and so they spent a long time, like years, doing um, uh, experimental research on tuberculosis um, paid for by the crown. Um, and I think that established um, a principle of the potential benefit of doing this kind of research um, you know, for kind of public good. Then in, um, in the process of putting together the National Insurance Act, um, there was a clause in the act which apportioned some of the, um, the monies that would be coming in for national insurance uh, to medical research. Um, and what was amazing about that clause is no one's quite sure who's pu who put it there in the act. Um, and it received very little debate um, in, in what were otherwise extremely extensive debates about National Insurance Act. Um, when the act passed, that meant in 1911 that there was going to be 50, I think it was 57,000 pounds a year for medical research, um, which hadn't existed hitherto. Um, and in order to spend it, to work out how to organize it, uh, uh, the um, medical research uh, committee was, was formed, um, which started basically to spend this public money on experimental research. Um, and it, it happened uh, sort of amazingly, you know, uh, without antivivisectionists even seeming to notice that there was this massively important um, turning of the tide where suddenly the crown would be the main sponsor of this kind of uh, research in the name of public health. Um, so after 1911, you, you, you know, the antivivisectionists are still there and they're still campaigning, um, but the government has agreed um, you know, in principle and in law, um, to funding this kind of uh, research indefinitely. So before we get to to World War One, um, I, I want to ask a question about the images that you use. Mm. I don't want to miss the chance to do that. Um, you use a couple, several satirical um, images from the magazine Puck, and yeah. I wa I wondered if you would care to describe one of them and maybe talk a little bit about how the satire relates to sort of larger debates around experimental medicine. Yeah, so uh, I mean, I I, I love these puck images because they're so vivid. Unfortunately, in the book, they're um, they're black and white, but they're inc the, the original is incredibly colorful, um, popping images. Um, and um, essentially, the, the, this is the key difference about the um, about the American story is that they absolutely did not the medical establishment did not look for the support of eminent society figures. They directly went to um, the popular press and looked for uh, journalists and editors who would um, write essentially for them. Um, and Puck Magazine was one of these um, sort of muckraking uh, popular magazines um, that was on the side of the medical establishment. And so these images from Puck are 
Um, essentially, they're attempts to encapsulate the argument of, of medical science and to, and to ridicule um, these high society anti-vivisectionists. So that the image that I opened the book with is, um, is of a, an urban conflagration. There's a, there's a, a big fire um, and the fire itself is um, a metaphor for disease. You can see disease written in the in the plumes of smoke that are coming out of the building, as the the poor uh, trapped in the building try and uh, jump. And the only thing saving them is uh, this uh, life net, which is being held by. Um, firemen. Now, the firemen all have white beards, um, and white beard meant physiologists. Um, in this period, uh, there's there's a physiologist look, um, mm-hmm. and it's and it's these firemen holding this life net, which says on it, um, "vivisectional research life net," uh, while another one holds a, a a hose, and the water that sprays on the fire is called knowledge. And meanwhile, all around them, you see these. Um, these sort of society cranks trying to chop the hose with an axe mm-hmm. or to um, to strangle the firemen or to pull them away. And, you know, the the classic representation of the anti-vivisectionist lady uh, is um, someone who has a, a lapdog um, and a bonnet with birds of paradise plumes in it, um, sort of in order to kind of mock their hypocrisy, like they, they can't possibly really be caring about animals. Um, um, and yet, as they try to stop this research happening, they're actually allowing the poor to fall to their deaths. Um, so it's, you know, and there's a whole series of these and they're, they, they perfectly encapsulate what the scientists were themselves trying to say or trying to get journalists to write on their behalf. But it's, it's, so in the U.S., it's a little bit more populist, would you say, the defense, and, and a little less elitist? Um, well, I think it's it's elitist, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, the American medical scientists had a higher opinion of themselves. They would say to each other, um, oh, the medical establishment is is much more influential and respected here than it is in Britain, where it's all still, you know, clergymen and, and aristocrats. Um, so in a way, they took their professional status uh, to be more um, important. But they also took seriously the uh, this argument they made that if you weren't a scientist, you couldn't understand, uh, and therefore took responsibility themselves for putting out the argument um, uh, about why vivisection was good instead of sort of passing it off to um, a social elite, let's say. Um, And that meant that they, you know, they worked um, hand in hand with journalists, feeding them information, writing them bits and making sure that, um, you know, their, their arguments would appear prominently in places like Harper's Weekly, um, Mm -hmm. where society uh, readers would would get the right opinion, if you see what I mean. 
Well, I'd like to to talk a little bit about the legacy of these debates because um, certainly we, you know, now uh, there is government funded research, um, yep. experimental medical research that uses um, animals and and things like that. Um, what happens to the defense of experimental medicine after World War One, and then? How does the story told um, in this book continue to influence debates about medical ethics? Well, I mean, I see in in many ways, I see the war as a kind of fracture point, um, but for complicated reasons. Um, So I think by the end of the war, or maybe even by the start of the war, um, the, the argument that comes from the medical establishment is is really well set, um, and it's maintained uh, after the war. But the context of medical research after the war changes quite dramatically, um, especially as governments start to do medical research um, in a uh, military capacity. So government's much more interested in medical research, but also it's much more interested in secrecy. And that alters the the kind of um, position of medical science, which had always argued that it was public and open and therefore all to see. And after the First World War, that is much less true. Uh, it's, it's much more secretive. Um, the second thing is, I, I close the book with this, um, that all of these, or the vast majority of these scientists had been arguing from the perspective of laboratory experimentation using animals. And suddenly they're confronted with this uh, growth of um, clinical experimentation using uh, humans who may not have been able to um, fully consent to what was happening to them. Um, in clinical research. And so you get throughout the period of my study, but especially towards the end of it, the question of informed consent starts to really come to the fore. Um, And it's not dealt with um, very well at that point, but that would become the dominant 20th century question, the the ethical question of who can consent and and how can we make sure this consent is, is fully informed consent. So that's another um, another major uh, change, actually, that that signifies the war as a kind of fracture point in this story. Um, some things stay the same. Um, the question of um, the status of suffering, whether um, an animal uh, suffers to the same extent as a human, and how you how you measure the difference or or in some way accord a different ethical status to different kinds of being. That question um, uh, never went away, um, became much more acute and much more deeply researched in the 20th century. Um, And with it, this this calculus of of suffering measured against a calculus of um, benefit. Um, And so the that, that very much is alive in the period that I study here. Um, 
in the 20th century, I think with the diversification of uh, research using animals, some of which is for medicine and some of which is really not, um, mm -hmm. and you know the whole use of cosmetics and so on. This question of um, uh, benefit against suffering or benefit against risk um, um, becomes much more sharply focused in the 20th century, but you, you see its roots here. But it's, I, I think that the book makes the point that this is not a, a sort of utilitarian calculus the whole way through. Right, that's true. Um, it's, it's, it's not. Um, and in a way, um, it, becomes, uh, it becomes more so uh, uh, in some quarters. I, I, I try to make the point that medical scientists... Um, weren't necessarily on the whole um, utilitarian. Um, they were, um, their, their, if you, if their sort of ethical bearing came from Darwin, um, mm. from the descent of man. Um, and um, they were able to um, sort of uh, envision this sort of far-seeing uh, good. Um, but having said that, when they were envisioning this far-seeing good, they did tend to weigh it against, uh, I mean, in, there's one sort of famous equation, you know, about the, the life of one human against a thousand guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that kind of thing made it into it. But, I, you know, most of the, my study seems is about um, a kind of, um, it's about a kind of humanity and it's about a kind of beneficence and it's about uh, progress and it's about the value of curiosity um that uh that calculus of suffering is is there and it's ready to be um exploited at various points and i i, I you know i if you read uh um kathy gear's book on mm -hmm. on pain pain pleasure and the greater good you know it's clear that in the 20th century this calculus of suffering is still very much alive in uh, the social cultural discussion of what experimenters are doing. Yes, I um, and I have read that book, and that's it, it's almost like a sequel to this one. Yeah, that yeah, one I felt that too. <laughs> um, uh, well, I could, t I we could keep going, but we have taken up a lot of your time already, Rob, and so I am going to. Um, go ahead with our traditional final question, okay. which is, what are you working on next? Is there an 11th book? Uh, <laughs> well, 11, 12, 13 are already on the way. Um, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, the next uh, sort of single authored research book, I'm, I'm working on a book for polity called um, Knowing Pain, which is a history of sensation, emotion, and experience really covers um, uh, uh, a history of pain from antiquity to the present and globally, um, which one of these things that um, I do is self-punishment every now and again. Um, but I'm also working right now um, with, I'm finishing up an edited book uh, with Bettina Hitzer called Feeling Disease, which is about the experience of medicine and illness in modern history. Um, and that's a, a really exciting collection of, of essays, which um, uh, we felt, I mean, it was, we had this conference right before 
uh, like it was in January 2020, so right before the pandemic really hit us. Um, and suddenly the questions we were uh, asking at that conference became very urgent. So um, so that's that's going to be out next year. Well, those sound like um, many exciting projects in the pipeline. Um, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to share your work with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.